I was uh, quite taken by the opening paragraph of Ann Kennedy's review, uh, Christianity Today review, of uh, Michael Horton's new book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears that Divide Us. Uh, Horton is a seminary professor in uh, California. Uh, The review Kennedy wrote came out just uh, a few days ago. And uh, she opens her review, and I'm reading this now. Fear, I have said to myself over the past two years, is what I'm having for breakfast. Anxiety, whether I like it or not, is the bread and butter that sustains me. I lather it on in the morning. I sip it down at night. Even my sleep is interrupted by strange and garish dreams, and I'm not alone. I can't count the number of people I know who are dealing with unprecedented levels of anxiety. And when I look at my children and the world they're inheriting, well, other words crowd in like panic. Uh, Indeed, Kennedy is not alone. Uh, Lots of people are stressed. Indeed, I suspect that there's something to the the theory I'm suddenly reading about in all kinds of places that one of the reasons we're seeing so many children who are stressed and depressed and other things is because they are picking it up from their parents who are stressed. This is what I would refer to as the, uh, well, the flight attendant theory of uh, panic. So um, when I was uh, on an international flight a long time ago. It was the first time I'd ever taken an, uh, an Ambien. I had an overnight flight and, um, you know, it was going to be changing time zones. And so I, I had taken an Ambien. I was, I was a little bit nervous about what it might do. And uh, about an hour later, I, I remember fighting to wake up because I hear the pilot saying, Uh, That explosion that you've heard is nothing to be concerned about. However, you will notice that we are making um, an unscheduled descent into the, you know, whatever, Cincinnati airport. Everything's fine. Flight attendants, please prepare, you know, uh, for landing. And I'm thinking, that explosion, I didn't hear it. Um, And I remember going, is this plane crashing? And I'm trying to figure out how I should respond. And some people around me were definitely panicking. Uh, But... I remember looking at the flight attendants and saying, oh, well, she seems very calm. So she's either doing a good job or this is more routine than I might read between the lines. And I think kids a lot of times are just trying to figure out, should I be nervous about all the stuff I'm hearing about? And to the extent that they see stress in their parents, they are owning that. So... um, Look, we don't have to go looking for reasons to be unsettled today. You know what they are. Uh, There's plenty of of reasons to uh, have trouble sleeping or to be anxious. Uh, I'm thinking about the the problems that we share, which, you know, uh, I mean, it's Putin, it's inflation, it's uh, political dynamics, cybersecurity issues, um, all those things. But it may be that those are, it may be that those are not at all the things that you are dialed in on. It may be that you are unsettled for far more personal reasons. Um, You are are struggling with all manner of things. It is your your life. It is your marriage or your lack of a marriage. It is your health or your lack of health. It is your uh, job or your lack of a job. Uh, There can be all kinds of things that are going on. And so um, there's a lot of anxiety out there. We don't have to be taught to be anxious. We sort of figure that out for ourselves. It comes naturally. 
Um, some would say, if you're not anxious today, you're not paying attention. Okay, well, maybe so. Uh, all that said, uh, I want us to think about reasons for hope. Uh, I want to talk to those of you who are on the edge. I want to start a conversation uh, for the next few weeks about how to uh, be more fully aware of what's going on and as a result, uh, to not be so anxious. So um, my basic premise is the way forward is a better understanding of the character of God, a deeper communion with a God who is, who is loving, who is holy, who is powerful, who is in control, and uh, that the more we look at him, the, the greater our awareness of who he is, the greater our childlike confidence can be in him, and he is not panicking. So when it comes to managing stress, let me just clear, clear this up. When it comes to managing anxiety, there are lots of um, ideas out there that, that, have, uh, that have some merit. Um, some are, you know, reasonable. People say, uh, well, cut back on your news intake. Cut back on your caffeine intake. Uh, you need to spend more time uh, with friends. You need to, uh, you know, you need to get more sleep. Some of the ideas out there are perhaps uh, less uh, helpful. I hear people saying that uh, we should be ignoring everything that's going on. They want absolutely no insight uh, on uh, on the global or local scene. I know people who are drinking too much and suggest as much. I know people who, um, I keep reading about this rubber band method. So you put a rubber band on your wrist and every time you get anxious, you snap the rubber band and you say, uh, I am going to relax. And you sort of force yourself to re relax. It's a, it's, a, you know, it's a behavior modification technique. And I, I, I mean, I suppose it has some, um, it has some, uh, value, but uh, it reminds me a little bit on the Jerry Seinfeld episode where everybody was running around screaming, serenity now. Um, look, I think the way forward is um, quite different than the rubber band method. I want to encourage you to right-size God. Uh, I want to encourage you to take a deeper look at who he is. And uh, this will mean that um, as you understand him more, among other things that will happen, and I'm going to talk about that, um, it will mean that there is a greater sense of trust, that the things that are occupying your current uh, anxiety list uh, are, are very much in control. Um, but as I said, uh, this goes in a different direction. So um, in this series, we're going to look at four reasons for hope. And they're all attributes of God. And today, I want us to look in Isaiah chapter 6, the first few verses, uh, and think about God's holiness. So the text starts, uh, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And this is the prophet Isaiah who is giving this. And, um, and just for the record, um, when it comes to a passage like this, I generally... Uh, <laughs> Always try to make note that the Bible is not a fairy tale. It's a historical book. It doesn't start uh, or doesn't ever say a long time ago in a faraway land. It doesn't read like myth. It doesn't read like, uh, you know, a fairy tale. In the year the king Uzziah died. So Isaiah is dating this, but he's also telling us something because Uzziah had been king for 50 years. 
And so you have a major tumultuous national disruption here. Nobody can basically remember a time when Uzziah had not been king. And so this means there is loss and there is instability. It's a time for anxiety. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So trains of robes, uh, think wedding dresses or king's uh, robes, uh, basically, the rule is the more important, the more significant, uh, more powerful the king, the more important the bride, the more significant the wedding, the longer the train. And so for most people, there is no train or it's a very short train. Uh, but I, I, I did not watch uh, Princess Di get married however many years ago, but I remember reading that, that the train was quite long. So in this case, what we're being told is that the train of the robe for the Lord is, uh, it fills the room, which suggests, you know, almost like it, it goes all the way back and then it doubles back and it just keeps folding back and forth. It's just, the, you cannot, you, you cannot comprehend the, the statement of importance that is being made about God. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, the train of his robe, filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Um, that's a special kind of, of angel that were sort of assigned to this particular task. They each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces so with two wings, they're going to cover their feet. That's sort of their creatureliness. With two wings, they're going to fly. With two wings, they cover their faces, suggesting that, that the brilliance of the glory of God is so great that even though they were created to be in his presence, right, they cannot, uh, they cannot do it. it you, you, you can only get so close to the sun, right? And, and pretty soon it is simply overwhelming. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, there are a number of things to note here, uh, significant things. For starters, the word holy, kadosh uh, in Hebrew, is a word that, um, well, I think it's a word that has a PR problem. When people think of holy, they think of, um, you know, I don't know, something that lives at the intersection of uh, religious and no fun. And um, it's, it's um, yeah, I guess that's it. It's, um, it's a term that does not invite a lot of glee. Most people don't, you know, you don't, you don't immediately warm up to the idea, oh, this person's very holy. We're going to have a great time together. Um, Holiness suggests boring rules made and enforced by self-righteous people who haven't had fun in 20 years and, and whom you have no desire to spend time with. Uh, so the, the term itself, the Hebrew term kadosh, um, suggests separate, uh, apart from, uh, God is apart from us, he's altogether better than us, he is uh, distanced from us in one sense. Um, that, that's not all that, um, it's not all that helpful, but, but keep going with me. So uh, another thing to realize here is that um, 
the word is repeated. And as I've noted in various times, in Hebrew and Greek, uh, this is not exclusively true, but they don't do a lot with um, adverbs and adjectives. They tend to just repeat the word in order to emphasize the point. This is why you get um, uh, Jesus saying, or the, the, new, the, the gospel sometimes quoting Jesus as saying, you know, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, it's not very truly, I say to you, because the word in the Greek, it's just the two word, truly, the two words, true, true, I say to you. Um, R.C. Sproul, I heard his uh, sermon on this, this 35 years ago on this passage, and it, was, it, it gripped me. His book, The Holiness of God, is very, uh, very much worth reading, uh, and he has a chapter on Isaiah 6. And in that chapter, uh, he makes reference to, to uh, I think it's Genesis 14, where there, there are these kings and on the backside of a battle, they're fleeing and they fall into these pits. Uh, and Sproul just noted uh, all the different ways that, this, that these pits got translated. Some said that they were deep pits. Some said that they were tar pits. Some said that they were great pits. I mean, it's all these very different uh, descriptions. And so the question is, well, what kind of pits are they? Uh, why does somebody say tar pit, somebody say great pit, somebody say deep pit? Well, he said the reason is because the Hebrew, it just says they fell into pit pits. Uh, so they wanted to emphasize, you know, there are, there are pits and then there are pits. And this was a particularly pity pit. So um, words get repeated. Now, there is almost no time, lots of words get repeated twice. Almost no words get repeated three times. Um, you do curiously have uh, the, the numeral six repeated three times. So uh, seven is the number of perfection. Six is sort of the number of imperfection. It sort of, it's, it's glaring in the fact that it's uh, not perfect. And so when you take the, num the numeral six and you repeat it three times, six, 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 you have, you know, the epitome of imperfection. You have the, you know, this, this horrendous um, mark of the beast. Now, uh, there's only one attribute of God that is repeated three times in Scripture. And, and it is holy. And so we have this here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And by the way, it's not just here in Isaiah 6. Jump ahead a couple thousand years and get to Revelation chapter 6, and you will see that, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 4, you, you will see that you have uh, a scene in heaven in which, again, we're, we're looking at these creatures, these six-winged creatures, and they're still saying, you know, like, holy, holy, holy uh, is the Lord God Almighty. They're repeating this. When, when people uh, express frustration that some of the uh, worship songs, not the hymns, because you don't tend to repeat hymns like that, but when some of the worship songs repeat themselves too often. And I, I get that. I, I mean, these are all sort of style things that we like. We grew up with whatever. But I, I'm, I'm always thinking, uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm here to tell you. Uh, apparently, the, 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 the chant, the hymn, the ongoing refrain in heaven hasn't changed in a couple thousand years. So, holy Holy, holy 
uh, is the Lord God Almighty. So the gist of this is that God is so amazing, so uh, above uh, uh, being above. He's so beyond being beyond. He's so remarkable. He is so altogether stunningly, staggeringly amazing and, uh, and holy in the, in the most positive, wonderful, awesome, but also frightening way um, that, that it completely overwhelms Job. So um, what, what, what we see with Job is that, that he is uh, immediately and profoundly reduced to essentially nothing. Um, he is drawn into the presence of God and he collapses. And he says, um, uh, woe is me. This term woe is, um, is uh, it's the term of, you know, sort of the punishment for those who break the covenant. And he's calling it upon himself. Woe is me for I am undone. Uh, and he says, I am, a, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Almighty. So we see this repeatedly. We see this, by the way, not just with God. We see this with angels. And I make this point over and over. People think of angels as being, you know, big, doe-eyed, uh, you know, soft, delicate, uh, fluffy, um, you know, uh, nice, friendly kinds of creatures. But the reality is, in the presence of angels, people quake. They, they, the angels are not as holy as God, but they are not uh, compromised by sin. And in the presence of that purity, uh, the response is shock and dread. Like, oh no, oh no, I'm seeing myself more clearly now. And, uh, and, and I'm seeing what goodness, uh, what moral purity and perfection looks like, and I'm undone. So when Isaiah is in the presence of, of God, he immediately collapses and, uh, and calls down upon himself. Uh, whoa, this is, we see this um, in the book of Job. Job spends chapters of saying, God, okay, you know what? I've, I've been doing, I'm, I am not guilty here. This is your problem. This is your fault. You need to show up and defend yourself. I got questions. You, you, you need to be held accountable. And when God shows up at the end of the book of Job, like Job doesn't ask any questions, right? Job suddenly just says, oh my goodness. Like I had no idea. I could not even begin to comprehend your glory, your power, your might, your holiness, your goodness, your, you, you I, I've got nothing to say. In uh, Revelation chapter 6, or, or 4, I'm, I've, I've got to go back. <laughs> Obviously, I'm confused on that, but there's a section in, Revel in the book of Revelation where people, uh, at the time of judgment, are pleading uh, for mountains to cover them so they don't face God, because God is too pure. He's too holy. He is too righteous. And so um, what we see here is that God is beyond beyond. He is above above. Uh, Isaiah is undone by the holiness of God. And so he, he cries out and says, woe is me. Uh, he brings down uh, a curse upon himself. And uh, uh, my eyes uh, have seen God and, and I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, Okay, a couple things to just 
process here. So first of all, it's, I just want to note, right? We don't, we don't get the, uh, wow, this is cool. I, 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 the response of Isaiah in the presence of God is not, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is, I mean, I almost want to, uh, you know, I almost want to see somebody channel that uh, crush the uh, sea turtle on Finding Nemo, right? The surfer dude, like, awesome. Uh, we don't get that. We don't get that response from Isaiah. What we get from Isaiah is that he is overwhelmed by the goodness of God and he buckles. And then he worries about his lips. And this is important. So uh, it says, uh, you know, I live among... I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So why the, why the, why the focus on lips? Uh, well, I think, I think Tim Keller is right here. Uh, and Keller says that Isaiah is a prophet. Right? So he's a speaker. He's a preacher. He's a, he's a pundit. He's, a, he's somebody who makes his living talking. Uh, and so... Uh, what he is, what he is noting here is, I got nothing. As a matter of fact, what I thought I had, I, I, the, I particularly don't have that. So, you know, you, you, if, so if, if, the, the lips are to a, to a prophet what fingers are to a piano player or what uh, speed is to Usain Bolt or what, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the biggest thing. So what we see Isaiah doing is he's not just repentant of sin. Like he's repenting of his repentance because his repentance was so small and shallow, and, and he actually thought that he had things to offer to God. I mean, he's looking at his strengths, and he's saying, I, I, I thought, you know, I was, a, I was a good guy. This is not the call of Isaiah. So Isaiah 6 is not the call of Isaiah. Isaiah had been called as a prophet earlier. So Isaiah has been a prophet, and so he has, he has earned a following, you know, he's, he's gained a following. He's, he's speaking for God. He thought that he was, he was contributing in that sense. And, and what his response is when he sees God is um, to say, uh, oh, oh, yes, what I thought I had going for me. Yeah, no, I got to repent of that too. This, by the way, we see something of this with Paul uh, in Romans 7 where Paul's, Paul's pride is not his lips. Paul's pride is his zeal, his rectitude, his moral purity. He kept the law, right? And then uh, he's studying the law, studying the Ten Commandments. He comes and, and he suddenly, a bigger, more comprehensive understanding of who God is and what God expects, it, it reduces Paul. And he's like, oh, yeah, no. I have nothing. Uh, he, is, he is completely reduced to nothing. So um, in a sermon on Jeremiah chapter, um, Jeremiah chapter 6, uh, George Whitfield, who was one of the architects of the Great Awakening, he was a contemporary of uh, John and, and Charles Wesley, uh, member of the Holiness Club in Oxford. Then he comes to the U.S. preaching, tour, Jonathan Edwards, all this stuff. Whitfield uh, 
reflects on this passage in Jeremiah. He preaches a sermon on Jeremiah um, uh, 6, in which this is the, the statement, peace, peace, uh, they say, but there is no peace. And in response to this, Whitfield says, um, when a soul first gets a sight of God, he says, I will reform. I will be mighty good. And, and attempts to sort of go forward under their own righteousness. If for no other reason to hide their nakedness because there's some awareness uh, with this initial uh, glimpse of God uh, that they need to raise their game. But, Whitfield writes, when a soul gets a full view of God, it realizes it never has and never will love God as he deserves to be loved with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That even his best deeds, defiled and full of self-centeredness as they are, uh, that God will condemn and that your best prayers you will ever set up uh, that your repentance needs to be repented of and that all your righteousness is just a filthy rag and that God must send them and you away if you bring them into him in order to recommend you to his favor. Therefore, only before the face of God, um, says Whitfield, only a sight of God's full holiness can bring you out of your self-righteousness, which is always the last idol taken out of your heart. Until you see it for what it is, you will not trust in Christ. You may turn to him for help. You may make him your example, but you will not trust in him as savior until you've repented of your righteousness. So um, let me just step back here to make sure you understand where I'm going. We're talking about how to navigate the, the challenges of, of the day, how to, how to deal with uh, the stress points, how to deal with the anxiety, how to deal with uh, the instability, what, whatever it is that may be unsettling you. And I'm saying you need a, 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 you need a, a, a clearer picture of who God is. You need to right-size God. You need to understand his, his power and his love and his holiness and his goodness, right? You need to understand those things because when you understand those things, right, then, then uh, the problems that you're facing, you go, okay, I, I can trust God with those problems. But I'm also saying this. You need to understand that when you get a, a clearer picture of who God is, right, the, the logical next reaction is to say, oh no, I got bigger problems than I ever thought. So in Mark chapter 4, the disciples uh, are in the boat with Jesus. The storm comes up. Jesus is asleep in the boat. And then uh, they wake him up saying, you know, master, don't you care? We're going to drown. We're going to die. And here you are sleeping. And uh, Jesus says, oh, you have that little faith. And then he turns and he calms the storm, right? He says, be still. And the storm goes away. <laughs> and it says in Mark chapter four, then the disciples were even more afraid. Right. They had been looking at this one problem and thinking, oh, we got a storm. We got bad weather. We got, you know, oh. now they're going, oh, yeah, that was like, that was nothing. I now realize the power and the, and the, and, and the presence, I am next to the presence of God. And, and he can just 
casually, flippantly, sort of calm the storm. That's power, a, a million X, the power of the storm. And so that uh, is unsettling. And so what I want to say to you here, the way forward for us is not simply a bigger view of God, but it is a, uh, it is a, uh, a radical embrace of grace. So Martin Lloyd-Jones um, has this illustration, and he says, if, uh, if you see somebody uh, and they say, hey, I, uh, I stopped by your house and you weren't there, uh, and I took care of one of your bills for you, like I, I paid one of your debts, uh, you don't really know how to respond because, what, you were there and the postman was dropping something off and there was, you know, five cents postage due, I mean, you know, and you paid the five cents, or you stopped by and you, uh, you paid down my mortgage, or you stopped by and, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was uh, uh, the, the, the guy from the mafia who was going to rub me out because I owe, you know, $70,000 to the mob and, and you took care of it. I mean, what, you, what, what, what debt exactly did you pay? And until you understand how much your debt is, you don't really understand how appreciative you should be. Part of what happens here, right, was we come to a deeper understanding of who God is, is uh, we understand how broken we are and that we have to repent of our repentance and that we have to, uh, we have to understand that our best stuff is uh, woefully short. And so um, uh, we, we have to do nothing, we, we can do nothing other than rest in the grace of God. So, um, goes on, uh, just to finish this up, uh, the passage goes on, verse 6, so Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken uh, with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. So, we have an altar here in heaven. Isaiah is being, you know, the, the, the atoning work of Christ is, is, is uh, taking away his sin. Um, but then, here's a key. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Now remember, this is not the initial call of Isaiah. He has been a prophet. So what's happening here? is uh, it's a different ask that God is setting out there. And, and it comes on the other side of Isaiah, realizing who God is and realizing who he is and realizing how broken he personally is, but that he is loved in spite of it. How much of a failure he is. How, how wrongly he had understood the situation. How, how wrongly he had uh, downsized his own sin. How wrongly he had downsized God's goodness and holiness. How he had gotten all these things right. But yet God, in spite of all the things that Isaiah was getting wrong, wrong God had loved him. And so now God is asking and he says, I need somebody to take this assignment. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to spend the next, you know, the rest of your life uh, preaching to people who are not going to listen and calling people to obey that are not going to obey. And it, you're going to look like you're a complete failure. Uh, you're going to have no, you're going to have no signs of success. I need somebody that's going to go do this job. And Isaiah 
Now that he is seeing things differently, right? He's, he's understanding problems differently in light of who God is. Isaiah says, oh, I'm in. Here am I, send me. So um, men and women, look. We need to right-size God. The things that can obsess us, upset us, overwhelm us, keep us up at night. The things that can be leading you to be unsettled, to drink too much, to be uh, mad, to, to, you know, to be anxious. Those are, those are not the right things. And we need to see God more fully, and we need to see ourselves more fully. And that leads to a different orientation. And it's, 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 a, it's one in which we are uh, downsized and our problems are downsized, but we understand the need to uh, humbly uh, but righteously try to live before a holy God. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing uh, the great hymn, Holy, 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 which does celebrate, you know, the only one attribute of God that gets elevated to this third power, uh, and it is, it is celebrated in this hymn. So let me pray. Lord God, I pray for myself as I pray for others that we would gain a, a bigger, clearer, more accurate picture of who you are. I, I pray, Father, as I, as I ask for that, I ask that uh, you, as you flood us with your holiness, you would flood us with uh, an awareness of your grace. And may we, uh, may we right-size the world. May we right-size our problems uh, by right-sizing you. Help us to um, rightly order our loves and to rightly order our fears. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.